Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. You're listening to On the Environment, a podcast series from the Yale Center for Environmental Law and Policy. For more information, visit the website at envirocenter.yale.edu. Hello, my name is Amy Mount and I'm a dual degree master's candidate at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies and the Jackson Institute for Global Affairs. I'm in the studio today with Janet Dalziel. Janet is Director of Global Development for Greenpeace International and a member of its senior management team based in the Netherlands. Originally from New Zealand, she has spearheaded the international Greenpeace campaign to stop climate change, represented Greenpeace at intergovernmental negotiations, and led three expeditions to Antarctica. She is spending this semester at Yale as a World Fellow. Janet, thank you for joining us today. It's a huge pleasure to be here. So could you start off by telling me what made you want to join Greenpeace in the first place and then what led you to stay working there for most of your career? Right, well, so, so just as with many people uh, working for Greenpeace, I started off with the issue. So when I finished my master's degree, uh, one of the big uh, global issues was uh, the question of what to do with Antarctica. And um, I was very passionate about Antarctica as this uh, the last great wilderness on earth and I wanted to do something about making sure it stayed that way and Greenpeace was running a big campaign at the time particularly in New Zealand it was very high profile and it just so happened I was very fortunate that when I'd finished my degree there was a job going at Greenpeace to work as an Antarctic campaigner and um I've stayed since because uh, the the values and the the way the organization operates continues to inspire me almost every day um, particularly the the ethos of if you see something wrong you should do something about it and that's really what Greenpeace is all about and and it's what I love about working for the organization the sense that sense of empowerment you get that there's always something you can do and it's an organization that has a capability to do something about it and um, it's always, I've always found a lot of professional challenges working for the organisation as well. So if, if you started off in the Antarctic campaign, what, what are Greenpeace's priorities today and how were they chosen? Okay, well the priorities today are very different from what they were then. Clearly climate change is the big one. It's the, it's the greatest challenge facing, facing our planet. It's an existential challenge and um, it's been our priority now for about 10 years. And related, very closely related to that is the second priority of saving the tropical rainforests, which are so important to protect, help protect us from the worst of climate change. They're the lungs of the planet. So those are our priorities, and they were chosen because in the view of the organisation, everybody that works for the organisation, they, they are indeed the, the kind of mother of all problems. Um, we also work, continue to work as we always have on oceans to prevent ocean destruction um, and we're starting to work more on sustainable agriculture and moving into uh, issues of clean water. Interesting and, and so Greenpeace is known around the world for its provocative confrontational style of environmental campaigning. Do you think there's a difference between most people's impressions of Greenpeace and what the organisation is actually like? Uh, yes and no. So, yes, there's a lot more to Greenpeace than um, just the things that you see in the media. 
Uh, we do do these high profile uh, direct actions, nonviolent direct actions, um, and they are clearly, you know, one of our trademarks. Um, but they have a purpose, and the purpose really is to um, bring attention to issues that otherwise stay under the radar. That our actions are designed to make people uncomfortable, particularly those who are in a position to make a change about the issue that we're talking about. But in order to be successful in those things, an awful amount of work goes on to um, behind the scenes and sometimes not so behind the scenes in um, making sure our research is really good, uh, following up the actions with lobbying so that the the people who um, need to make decisions uh, are really well informed about what the options are. We do a lot of work on solutions as well, so proposing solutions to the issues that we've raised. And now you've recently been working on a major redesign of Greenpeace's global operating model. Could you tell me a bit about what that involves? Yes, yeah, so uh, we um, we got quite a big shock at, in Copenhagen in 2009 at the climate negotiations, which so famously tanked. Um, the, the big shock was that on the final night when there's a smoke-filled room, well, they're not smoke-filled anymore, but there's a small stuffy room with a uh, fill of people that have been uh, going without sleep for way too long. Um, on that final night, the group of people, uh, negotiators that Obama met with uh, to try and bring the conference to a close did not include the European Union. It included the heads of the delegations from China, India, Russia, South Africa, Indonesia, etc., but not the European Union. And the European Union is where we traditionally have our, our strength, and we kind of expect the European Union to be um, there's the kind of the champion, the environmental cha- champion in many of these international negotiations. And this was a big wake-up call to us that really the future of this century is not going to be decided by the powers of last century and we needed to get uh, much stronger, more experienced, more able to campaign and bring our message in these emerging economies. So that was the first thing. Uh, the second thing is clearly the rise of social media and the fragmentation of the traditional media um, uh, changes the game that we played last last century. And so we really needed to change uh, many of the ways we go about doing things. Um, and then the other thing is just the size of the organisation. We're now a size that where the old ways of finding decisions and um, coming to agreement... Uh, which pretty much relied on everyone knowing everyone, doesn't don't work anymore. Um, the organisation's too big, and we need different kinds of structures for decision making. So all of that has meant that we've, in the last couple of years, done a pretty major job of um, changing the way we take decisions and, and design campaigns and run campaigns internally. And so the really the key thing that we've come out with, the most important thing, is. Um, a change in the in who's responsible for proposing what we do and who's responsible for carrying it out. And in both cases, those go much more local. So now, under our new model, uh, the national officers are responsible both for proposing campaigns, proposing tactics, and for carrying them out. And the, the international secretariat has a 
new and more defined role, which is just to choose which ones are, going, are the ones that will be best for our global strategies, as opposed to the old way where the centre used to try and dictate what we do. Um, anyone who works in NGOs will recognise this, this kind of centre periphery dynamic, and I'm sure it's also true in companies as well, as, as to where uh, which parts of the organisation hold the strategy and which parts hold the, the doing. The, the tactics and the implementation. Um, so it's been a it's a, been a pretty major internal job. We have a federated structure, and uh, that means that it's difficult to get decisions. But once we do get decisions, we hope that they're very robust, and we're going to be able to to work this this new model and get much more effective. So you've just spoken about recent changes in in the past f- few years, like three or four years. Greenpeace is clearly quite old now. It's been it's going on for years, if not decades. And um, the the it, as whereas it was one of the first environmental campaigning organisations. These days, there's a, there's a lot of different organisations within the environmental advocacy community, and they all have slightly different agendas and different strategies. How does Greenpeace position itself within that broader community? Well, I think that the the plurality that you see in the environment movement these days is fabulous it's really it shows um, it shows how far we've come in many ways so environmental issues um, are no longer just about saving nature Um, it's no longer the preserve of a few hippies who really you know like hugging trees Um, these days, I think it's clear to most that environmental issues are economic issues, are social issues, are justice issues. It's all in- interconnected. So that means the more people that are working on it in different ways, the better. And the main reason why that is so important is that um, there's not one message or method of communication that is going to reach the vast um, diversity of people that really need to be involved in this in the in the discussion about what our future, our collective planetary future is going to be like. And so you need many, many different voices and styles of speaking in order to get to that vast diversity of the people that need to be involved in the debate. And some of them will want to talk about uh, their local saving their their historic methods of farming. Some will want to talk about um, the religious underpinnings of of what we do and the change. Some will want to talk about nature. Some will want to talk about justice and human rights. All of those things are needed and different styles of talking are also needed. And this week we saw the beginning of the latest round of, of United Nations climate change negotiations and recently the latest findings of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change seem to show that despite working on climate change since at least 1992 internationally, the international community hasn't got very far in tackling this major threat. The planet is heating up at an alarming rate and global greenhouse gas emissions continue to increase each year. Do you think this means that organisations like Greenpeace need to change their strategies, seeing as their efforts so far don't seem to be having an impact? So Greenpeace spends a lot of time talking about what our strategies need to be and um, constantly speaking about the need to change them and trying and and experimenting with different ways of working. Um, There's a danger in doing that if you, uh, particularly for an issue like this, which 
anybody who looks at it knows that it's going to take years to turn this this beast around. Um, it means that strategies have to be for the long haul. And so it's really dangerous, actually, to keep chopping and changing strategies because you'll never be effective. So we have to balance the two things. One is to to decide when uh, a particular strategy we've chosen is really not looking like it's going to work and and switch it swiftly, but not do that so often that we just end up um, behaving like a chicken with its head cut off. So uh, we constantly uh, argue internally about how we we reach the balance. But the second answer is that um, there are signs of some hope. Uh, we have now seen the um, the rate of increase in, in emissions is starting to level off. Uh, we see an enormous rise in the uh, strength of the renewables uh, industries. Um, so there are the so there there are the seeds of hope that that need to the the the, fan, the flames need to be fanned, obviously. Um, but we haven't achieved nothing in the last 10 years. We just clearly have to keep going at it because there's so much more to do. That's encouraging to hear. So the region experiencing the most rapid rates of warming is the Arctic. And this has been in the news a lot recently due to the arrest of 30 Greenpeace activists who were protesting oil drilling in the Russian Arctic Ocean. I imagine this must be a traumatic experience for Greenpeace. Could you tell me how it has impacted the organisation? Uh, yes, indeed. It's a, it is very traumatic for the organisation to have 30 of our friends and colleagues locked up in, in a Russian prison. And we hear daily the stories of how grim the conditions are in those prisons. And we've also heard, about, heard the stories of people like the Pussy Riot women who um, who are still campaigning for their freedom and talk about the terrible conditions that they're held in as well. So it's it's very, very traumatic for the organisation and we're very worried about our friends and colleagues. I know several of them quite well. They're very strong people, but they are just ordinary people like you and me as well. And if you can imagine yourself in that situation and I imagine myself in that situation and, and it's not not a good thing for them. Um, the most important thing for the organisation is to, well, firstly is to get them out, um, but secondly is to honour the sacrifice that they've made. So when we go and do non-violent direct actions, uh, something like this is always a possibility, a remote possibility usually, and um, this reaction from the Russian authorities was certainly uh, a long way beyond what we ever imagined because it is so disproportionate and unreasonable. Um, but nevertheless, activists go into these actions knowing that there may be consequences. And um, so it's now that the, these terrible consequences have come about, uh, it's really our job to honour those consequences and keep the, keep the campaign that they have sacrificed quite a bit for alive. Because what they're doing, what they were um, protesting about, is hugely important. It's part of the climate uh, issue. It's about um, preventing the same industries that have given us climate change from racing into the region that is currently most suffering from climate change and um, continuing to create more of the same problem that got us there in the first place. It's an obscenity that... Um, that these companies are thinking and these countries are thinking of moving in this way into the Arctic. 
and we need to do everything we can to turn that to turn that around and stop it. So how did Greenpeace come to believe that non-violent direct action was the right tactic to use in this case? Well, one of the reasons why we find non-violent direct action so effective is that it's uh, really so literal. It's uh, people caring about something so much that they're prepared to go and put their bodies into the into the picture to stop that thing. And in this case, uh, the action was against a, the first ever rig, drilling rig, to move into the area of the Arctic where this that, that has been opened up by warming. And so this is a classic case in which literally going and trying to do something about it has quite a lot of meaning. It's the first one there. If it was successful, it's a massive ongoing risk to the immediate environment as well. So besides the oil that it's pulling out um, to make it available for burning, it's also um, a terrible, terrible accident waiting to happen. If you can imagine uh, the the um, spill in the Gulf of, of um, Mexico, the BB, BP Deepwater Horizon, if you imagine that happening in the Arctic in the winter when it's covered by sea ice, it would be impossible to do even the actions that BP did to finally cap the well. That would be impossible for months and months and months in the Arctic. And the uh, spill response is not there, etc., etc., etc. So it's literally a, it's a place where it makes a lot of sense to draw a line in the ice and say, no, this is, this is too far. And that's why nonviolent direct action made so much sense. And given that these activists were nonviolent, are nonviolent, and it was just you know thirty of them in a relatively tiny boat bobbing around in the Arctic Ocean, why do you think it was that the Russian government took such a hardline approach in response to their actions? Okay, so uh, I should make it clear: it's twenty-eight activists and two independent journalists who have managed to get themselves caught up in in this as well. Another injustice on top of an injustice. Um, it's speculation on our part as to why the Russian government has come down so hard on this case. Um, it seems pretty clear that uh, the Russian government and um, President Putin in particular is inclined to take a tough line on anything that um, that involves or looks like foreigners coming and in interfering in the uh, in internal affairs. Um, we we know that they they have the same problem with discussions around uh, laws relating to homosexuality homosexuality in Russia. Um, recently, Russia passed a new law that required any non governmental organisation receiving funding from outside the country to declare itself as um, a foreign agent, which in Russian pretty much means spy. It's the same has the same meaning, and so there's this. Uh, seems to be uh, this uh, very strong um, drive on the part of President Putin to put up the walls around Russia and to brand anybody not inside the walls as being foreign, spy, bad, interfering and so on. Does this experience overall make you more hopeful or more concerned about the future of the Arctic? 
I don't think that this experience per se does either. I am, well, I'm immensely hopeful that uh, the outpouring of goodwill and support that we've received from millions, literally millions of people around the world, shows that people care also about the Arctic. They care about our our 30 people in prison, but they also care about the issue that they're in prison for. And the fact that so many people care about it is in itself a huge sign of hope. Um, but having said that, uh, changing the uh, course of direction or the, the future for the Arctic is in itself a very complex thing. And so just this action is, is not on its own going to change the future of what's going to happen there. It's going to need to be have many other things piled on top of it, more public uh, pressure on the, the governments that are making the decisions, particularly the Arctic Council governments, um, more attention paid to how we're going to wean the, wean the world off its addiction to fossil fuels, um, more of all those things that we know need to happen in order to uh, challenge climate change. Well, good luck in um, hopefully getting those guys out of Russian jail. Um, finally, I just wanted to hear a bit about what advice you might give to young people today who are passionate about environmental issues and want to pursue that passion through their career. Well, there's really only one uh, piece of advice I can give, which is do it. If you're passionate about anything, you should do it. And um, I think the most important thing is that uh, these issues, these environment issues, are no longer, if they ever were, um, a side issue, uh, a, a nice to have. These are now the issues that will um, affect the course of the next century and beyond for our species and for the planet. So this, these issues, there's no better place for bright and passionate young people to be involved. And that involvement can take many, many different forms. We need entrepreneurs, we need activists, we need engineers, we need brilliant policy minds, we need politicians who are prepared to um, put their neck out and fight for these issues, etc., etc. We need all of those great people to really work together to make the change that's required. Well, it's been fascinating speaking with you today. Thank you again for joining us.